Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, October 5th. In today's news, America's enemies may take advantage of our distracted country and hospitalized president. Pope Francis warns that the world is drifting backward, and thousands of chairs are lined up in front of the White House as a solemn reminder of the COVID-19 dead. But first, the big idea. The White House continued to provide limited and contradictory information on Sunday about President Trump's health, saying that he had been given a steroid treatment after twice suffering bouts of low oxygen, but also contending that he's doing well and could soon be discharged from the hospital where he's being treated for the coronavirus. Adding to the confusion about his status, Trump briefly left Walter Reed in Bethesda to wave to supporters from a motorcade after releasing a video on Twitter thanking people who were gathered outside the facility. Several Secret Service agents and doctors were aghast about that outing. Advisors said Trump wanted to show strength with the car ride. At a news conference earlier Sunday, Trump's medical team tried to clear up the muddled picture it had created the day before when White House Chief Dr. Sean Conley falsely suggested that Trump had not been given any supplemental oxygen. But Conley continued to avoid directly answering specific questions about Trump's health on Sunday, even as he revealed that the president has been given dexamethasone, a steroid which is typically reserved for only the most severely ill coronavirus patients who need oxygen. Conley admitted to withholding truthful information about Trump's plummeting blood oxygen levels on Friday, indicating that he did so to put a positive spin on the president's improving condition and that he did so at the president's direction. Conley also announced that Trump's oxygen levels dropped again on Saturday. The episode continued what has been a days-long torrent of falsehoods, obfuscation, evasion, misdirection, and imprecision from those surrounding Trump as he faces the greatest threat to a sitting president's health in 40 years. From the chief White House doctor to the president's chief of staff, the inability to provide clear, direct, and consistent information about Trump's condition has been widespread since the virus began rapidly circulating inside the West Wing. Even now, it remains unclear when Trump last tested negative for the virus, a question White House officials refuse to answer as a growing number of people in the president's inner circle test positive. Understanding the date of Trump's last negative test could help us determine how long Trump may have been contagious and how many people he may have put at risk by traveling frequently, eschewing masks, and meeting with large groups against the advice of public health experts and guidelines. Since Friday, Trump has been treated with a range of drugs and experimental therapeutics. In addition to that steroid, dexamethasone, he's also been given by IV a five-day course of the antiviral drug remdesivir and a cocktail of monoclonal antibodies that have not been approved by the FDA. The monoclonal antibodies are meant to neutralize the virus, and the remdesivir is meant to stop the viral replication. But Trump appears to be the first person ever treated with all three drugs simultaneously. Outside doctors call it a kitchen sink approach, and they're mystified by what they say is an inconsistent portrayal of the president's illness as relatively mild, despite the aggressive mix of treatments that he's getting. Medical consensus has emerged over the last 10 months that COVID patients are especially vulnerable for a period of a week to 10 days after their first symptoms, that seven to 10 day window, critical. Some patients who seem relatively healthy suddenly deteriorate, either because of the virus itself 
or an excessive immune response that can cause damage to several organs, including the heart. A multitude of possible cardiac complications have also been associated with COVID, the most prominent of which involves a hardening of the walls of the heart that makes it difficult to pump blood and can lead to congestive heart failure. My colleagues Ariana Yunjing Cha and Amy Goldstein report that Trump is certainly among the first, if not the first, to receive the combination of the three strong treatments. But he's also getting a handful of supplements and an over-the-counter drug sprinkled in. And that's just what the White House is telling us about. When dexamethasone was tested in clinical trials earlier this year, not one of the patients were also given the experimental antibody cocktail that Trump's getting. Several doctors told Ariana and Amy that there is no data indicating how these treatments might react with each other, especially in an overweight 74-year-old man with a mild heart condition who's in the high-risk group for severe coronavirus illness. Trump's also taking vitamin D and zinc and an over-the-counter drug called famatidine, which is the active ingredient in the heartburn medication Pepsid. The president has personally touted the benefits of zinc, especially in combination with hydroxychloroquine for the coronavirus, and his administration has funded trials of famatidine despite allegations that he has a conflict of interest because of his investments in the company that makes it. Dexamethasone is recommended only in patients who are extremely ill, according to many guidelines. A recent study found that it tends to reduce deaths from the virus, but nearly a quarter of infected coronavirus patients who get it with supplemental oxygen, as Trump has, still died. Steroids in high doses and over long periods of time also lead to serious changes potentially in mental status, including delirium, hallucinations, and confusion. Now, notably, hydroxychloroquine is not on the list of medications that doctors say they're giving Trump at Walter Reed. Another treatment missing from Trump's regimen arsenal is a blood thinner given as a standard practice these days to any hospitalized patient with COVID-19 to reduce the risk of blood clots. In the spring, many doctors were surprised to find that microclots that appear in the lungs and heart appeared to be killing a lot of the patients who had the disease. Doctors speculated the president may have declined the blood thinner treatment after what happened to his younger brother, Robert, who died in August due to brain bleeding. Robert had taken blood thinners. Several doctors told us that any patient with Trump's symptoms and treatment who wanted to be discharged from the hospital three days after being admitted would be forced to sign a waiver saying they were leaving against doctor's orders because it would be so ill-advised and create such massive liability problems for the hospital. Hospitals typically don't discharge patients who are on IV medications, as Trump will be for at least three more days. But the White House isn't like a normal house. A team of specialists could continue to monitor him there and would probably have access to heart monitors, oxygen tanks, and even a crash cart. That's what contains the materials to resuscitate a patient should he go into cardiac arrest. The president would also have his regular fleet of helicopters and other transportation at his disposal to get him to the hospital quickly if needed. But while the White House has most of the medical functions that Walter Reed does, it does not have the same equipment that's needed for advanced imagery and other critical care functions. Trump has told allies, though, that he really wants to get back to the White House on Monday. There is some fear among his top advisors that this political decision, which would be made over doctor's advice, could lead to problems if the president relapses and needs to return to Walter Reed, which they fear would cause the markets to tank and make the whole situation look worse. Additionally, the White House itself continues to deal with an ongoing outbreak, 
Several staff members tested positive over the weekend. Nick Luna, Trump's personal assistant, tested positive on Saturday. So too have Kellyanne Conway, Hope Hicks, Chris Christie, three senators who were at the White House last weekend, and several others. Trump aides said yesterday that the president's illness has been unhelpful to his re-election hopes because it's drawing national attention to his administration's botched handling of the pandemic. They also say that the president being hospitalized undercuts what Trump himself views as his main attribute over Joe Biden, that he appears stronger and tougher. One senior administration official told us, quote, anytime the conversation is about coronavirus, it's not helpful for us. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start another week in America. Number one, we should take a step back. Our president is hospitalized with a virus that he refused to treat as a grave threat. In the final weeks of an election whose results he will not pledge to accept, as our nation confronts a struggling economy, an unyielding pandemic, and significant racial unrest, the combination of these cascading crises has plunged the United States into a vortex of potential vulnerability that national security experts say is probably without precedent. Current and former senior national security officials tell my colleagues Greg Miller and Karen DeYoung that they're worried, worried that consumed by our own difficulties, America is in a poor position to respond to provocations by adversaries, advance its foreign policy interests with support from our allies, or serve as a credible model for the world of what a functioning democracy is supposed to look like. Nick Rasmussen, who served as director of the National Counterterrorism Center under Trump and before that Barack Obama, said he sees weakness and division and above all, his word, distractedness. Rasmussen said any problem anywhere else is just a third or fourth order problem right now because we're so self-absorbed, inward looking and consumed with our own toxicity. And as he put it, when you're distracted, you make mistakes. Current and former U.S. officials say Trump's infection is widely seen overseas as a direct consequence of his troubled handling of the pandemic, but also part of a broader disturbing pattern of perceived incompetence and turbulence. A former senior U.S. intelligence official in frequent contact with counterparts at other intelligence services said he has been deluged with emails all weekend asking, what in the world is going on? This intelligence official says Trump's refusal to wear masks or abide by other protective measures has baffled foreign officials, describing Trump's symptoms as an extraordinary manifestation of the obtuseness of his approach to the contagion. Now, it's worth contrasting Trump's cavalier and reckless personal behavior to that of Vladimir Putin's. The Russian president has spent the last six months in almost total isolation at a country estate outside Moscow, running his government via video conference. Those who visit Putin in person must first quarantine for 14 days and obtain a negative test result before they are allowed into the residence. Then they must pass through a disinfectant tunnel to get inside, where strict social distancing is then maintained. Steve Hadley, who was national security advisor under George W. Bush, says that if Trump loses, he's most nervous about our enemies, like Russia or China, trying to come after us during the transition. Number two, Pope Francis says humankind is in the midst of a worrying regression. People are intensely polarized. Their debates, absent real listening, 
seem to have devolved into a permanent state of disagreement and confrontation. In some countries, leaders are using a strategy of ridicule and relentless criticism, spreading despair as a way to dominate and gain control. Amid all of that, the Pope says, the notion of a kinder, more respecting world sounds like madness. But with the release on Sunday of his third encyclical, a book-length paper that feels like something from a bygone era, Francis makes an uncynical case for how people can reverse course. Chico Harlan and Stefano Petrilli report from inside the Vatican City that this document amounts to a papal stand against tribalism, xenophobia, and the dangers of the social media age. It also marks a test for Francis in the eighth year of his papacy, at a time when his message has become familiar and is often overshadowed by the very voices, the louder voices, that he warns us about. The Pope argues that the world's response to the coronavirus shows the depths of humanity's mistrust and fractures. For Americans, certain passages of the new encyclical will read like a warning against Trump-style politics. Those sentiments came as little surprise to anybody who's listened to the Pope's remarks over the years with frequent denunciations of populism and wall building. But this paper argues in more detail about how the style of Trumpism can exacerbate divisions and lead to societal breakdowns. For example, Francis writes, quote, Things that until a few years ago could not be said by anyone without risking the loss of universal respect can now be said with impunity and in the crudest of terms, even by some political figures. Number three, five months after his dad died, Brian Walter still can't shake the feeling that he might have caused it. As a New York City subway worker, the 46-year-old was exempt from the stay-at-home mandate that he hoped would keep others in his family safe. Brian became the designated shopper for his folks and sanitized everything he brought into their home. But despite all the precautions he took, Brian and his dad, John, both contracted the coronavirus. After 19 days in the hospital, John Walter died on May 10th. COVID Survivors for Change, a network aimed at helping those affected by the virus locate support groups and other resources, declared Sunday a national day of remembrance. Walter was out on the ellipse yesterday afternoon just across the street from the White House with dozens of other people who have been directly touched by the contagion. He and other volunteers placed 20,000 empty black chairs on the grass on a crisp fall day. They were right by the Rose Garden where Trump announced Amy Coney Barrett as his pick to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg in what's clear now was a super spreader event for the virus. Each of those black chairs represented 10 Americans who have died of COVID-19. 10 Americans like his dad who are no longer with us. 10 Americans who aren't across the dinner table each night. Brian said he was out there because it's very important to get the message across that this is not a hoax. This is not a conspiracy. This is not a fake illness. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, October 5th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. Please stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.
The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast, Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.